Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to another edition of Around the Coin. My name is Faisal Khan. I'm your host for this show. Joining me today is Scott Robinson, who is the founder and VP of Plug and Play Fintech, the financial technology-focused startup innovation hub in California. Hi, Scott. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Scott, you, as I understand it, you're the founder and VP of Plug and Play, which is a fintech, financial technology-focused startup innovation hub based in California. You're making quite wave, quite the waves these days on uh, social media and everything else. So tell us a little bit, before we get into your uh, plug-and-play thing, just tell us a little bit about your uh, about your background. How did you get started? How did you come up uh, of this idea of, of, of establishing a, a hub? And what prompted you to do so? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I, you know, I'm a California kid. Um, I, I went to UCLA and graduated in 2008, so right in the midst of that big crisis. And so, luckily, I got out a quarter early. Um, I had stacked a number of my classes, and that meant I had a little bit of an edge in, in some of the job-seeking opportunities, which were slim to none at that point. And uh, when I uh, jumped into the, the workforce, um, the only job I could find was a, uh, basically a purchasing and facilities role. Um, in Santa Barbara for a large staffing company, which held maybe 400 retail locations around the country. And so, of course, um, you know, that was a very frustrating job, and it was a very difficult time in that industry. But uh, in the evenings, I learned how to code. And um, through the course of a few years working there, uh, you know, one day I decided I would run a utility audit, and I ran a script against some of the utility consumption based on square footage. And, um, you know, so I was looking for things like BTUs or, uh, you know, water consumption, et cetera. And through that, the scripting brought up pretty interesting anomalies. And um, the point being is as I learned how to kind of in, in indoctrinate, uh, you know, how to work on the accounting software, it was Mass 500 and PeopleSoft, um, became clear to me that uh, technology was really important. So actually, as a result of that audit, um, I uncovered a pretty significant embezzlement scandal. And, and from there, I opted to join startups. Um, so I moved back from Santa Barbara to the Bay Area and began working on a number of different uh, you know, early-stage startups, um, ranging from roles of front-end, back-end development, business development, fundraising, et cetera. And over the course of a few years, I had worked uh, with a number of startups, um, one in the, the sports uh, kind of recruiting space, another um, in the domain of uh, you know, general commercial real estate listings and education. And all the while, um, some of my colleagues at UCLA had been uh, delving into this thing called Bitcoin. And so I got this, this text one day from a colleague of mine who's uh, you know, a developer 
He's like, hey man, there's this thing called Bitcoin, and you know, while while it's uh, you know primarily being used for buying drugs right now, it's pretty interesting. Here's the white paper, and so I dove deep into that from a technical perspective, and it really struck a chord for me because when I was in education, and one of the big challenges was top-down um, approach into the K through 12 market, which was very fragmented and basically required a lot of money to make impact. And you know, our goal was to enable opportunity. Um, to bring uh, students from around the world aligns to the kind of varying um, standards uh, for each of the, the curriculums so that they'd be able to matriculate easily into the United States. And so anyhow, when reading the Bitcoin white paper, it became very clear that this was an interesting way that I could impose and, and help encourage opportunities for folks around the world. And um, that's really kind of how I segued uh, on the side. I think, you know, I was at the point after this education company working here at Plug and Play as a consultant. So... I actually joined Plug and Play uh, probably 2013-ish, early 2013, um, doing their consulting work for Salesforce and website. And then um, all the while, I had been attending a local meetup here that Roger Ver ran, um, the Silicon Valley Bitcoin meetup, so the first in the world. And uh, you know, back then, it was maybe 15, 20 uh, you know, scraggly-bearded folks that were trying to overthrow <laughs> central governments and um, you know, I think one the of the libertarian dream, right? That's right, the crypto anarchist. Um, but I've, I've always kind of had a very level-headed understanding of, you know, what this might mean. And you know, while I have idealists, I, I think you know, aspirations. There's also a very realist side to me. And, and what I saw was a pretty significant opportunity to make an impact in the way financial services function globally. And so, Roger, go ahead. And, and that also comes because you're a history major. You you get to see how certain events are repeating themselves or how certain events shape uh, the events of the future. So I guess the education in history does help, right? Absolutely. You know, it's funny. Uh, a good friend of mine, Scott Hartley, um, you know, he worked for more David Allen who's on the uh, the White House team a couple years back. But anyhow, he has a book called The, the Techie and the Fuzzy. And so a couple of points he brings up in that book which I would say from my experience is very true, is uh, you know, the fuzzy side, in this case, the historical understanding of why people write things and who's writing them to what audience, very, very relevant when it comes to both technology, politics, governance, and then, of course, um, your ability to really kind of impact uh, you know, the way to change things. And so um, you know, I thought I would be an attorney when I got out of UCLA, and I'm, I'm very glad I did not take that path. But um, as, as a result of that kind of historical context, yes, I think I can see a number of trends that are highly applicable to the change and disruption we're watching right now. Yeah, because I think, you know, that I've been reading quite a few books. Uh, there is obviously one called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. There is the history of the autobiography of money and so forth. And it's so it's so in your face that we have such a short-term memory as to why things are the way they are. We seem to forget events that happened 30 years ago, let alone 300 years ago, and, and monetary aspects, you know, fintech, what it's trying to do in the payment space, in the banking space, which is not, in many ways not too old, 600 years, you know, depending on how you look at it. Um, history certainly helps put all that into perspective. That's right. And, you know, it was a really interesting kind of uh, paradigm to look at Bitcoin and, and understand kind of the underlying definitions and features and characteristics of fiat and how money has worked over the years. So, um, yeah, uh, I would say it's, it served me well. I'm glad I did my historical reading in class. How do you feel because you were one of the... I don't want. I don't know if the earlier pioneers, adopters, believers of Bitcoin. How do you feel now? Now that you see what's happening all around you, do you feel like the Vincent Surf of the internet? I have to say I do. Um, I was very lucky to have had a neighbor um, who worked 
uh, with Steve Jobs, um, both at Apple, at Next, and then back at Apple. And I got to watch through the years how, and this was probably 93 through like 99, um, how technology was shifting. And, you know, he, he had a patent on the stylus, so he was very well involved and understood kind of the implications of what the Internet meant at, at that time frame. Um, and so I think, yeah, certainly when we look at uh, what Bitcoin and blockchain represents, and there's a, a level of irony here for me as well, is because, the, you know, when I was here at Plug and Play, we, we basically took that Bitcoin meetup and turned it into my 20% project, a, a Bitcoin accelerator. And then from there, as we heard some of the strategics opting to, to invest in, uh, I think at the time it was either Coinbase, Zappo, or Ripple, it mm-hmm. became clear it was, it was important that, hey, this thing might be hitting mainstream, and therefore we should kind of uh, extend the, the reach and the overall arcing umbrella of what, what we're looking at when it comes to financial services. And so then we, we pivoted from my little Bitcoin accelerator program into financial technology. And of course, we've maintained a Bitcoin and blockchain track. And now, of course, the irony is a lot of this is coming straight back to me. Um, so we have a lot of questions, inquiries, not only from financial services, but um, from varying industries that we work in. And when was it that you sort of trans- trans- transferred from the Bitcoin domain into the blockchain domain? Because that seems to be the main focus of whatever is happening out there today. That's right. So we made the public shift December 2nd, 2014, the day after um, one of our portfolio companies, Lending Club, had their IPO. And we, we really felt like it was a good time to announce. And then in proper, um, we, we brought in our first few uh, financial institution partners and our first um, startup cohort in uh, February of 2015. Um, but that was the first time we properly created a vertically or, or consortium-like based um, program meant to service um, startups and expedite their business development process, particularly for those that are enterprise-facing. And then meanwhile, uh, survey and understand industry and so glean a lot of the you know, use cases and challenges that these folks are facing across varying markets. And, and how many co-founders in Plug and Play? So I, I'm the co-founder of the FinTech Initiative here. Our, our CEO, Saeed, and I can give a, a brief anecdote as to how we got into this business. Sure, by way sure. Um, but our, our CEO, Saeed Amidi, uh, is, you know, we effectively are a family office, um, but he is, if you ever were to term a serial entrepreneur, that's the guy. Um, his family uh, has been in varying businesses ranging from commercial real estate. Um, so if you know of, of Palo Alto's University Avenue, um, he's got a lot of property there and had it through the 90s. Um, and then as well as a rug import export business, so there's a number of Persian rug galleries throughout the world. He's got a plastics business where he does quite a lot of business with Exxon and uh, a water bottling business in Portugal where he has a pretty significant market share. And so the family over the years um, has really had their hands in many kind of varying, interesting, highly industrialized or, you know, in this case, many supply chain or value chain related um, industries. And so as luck would happen in the 1990s, um, one of those buildings, we call it the Lucky Building, 165 University, um, he had a little extra office space and was watching a lot of his colleagues on Sand Hill um, making good, good investments and, and great returns. And so he opted to open this up for uncreditworthy entrepreneurs. And so, as, as luck would have it, um, the folks that took office space included Pierluigi Zappacosta from Logitech, Max Lebchin and Peter Thiel from PayPal, Larry and Sergey from Google. Um, and later, uh, another funny story is Andy Rubin dropping by um, and looking for actually, I believe it was a rug. Um, and they, they haggled over the, the relationship there for some time, uh, at the cost, I should say, of that rug. And at the end of that conversation, um, I think Said and some of his colleagues found out Andy was working on uh, basically the operating system for the T-Mobile sidekick. And so mm-hmm. with those quick success um, stories and investment as well as kind of um, building out an ecosystem, we, we took a, a, the facility here in Sunnyvale, our headquarters, in 2006. 
And so initially, this was a co-working space play, a line of sight, effectively, to see how the entrepreneur um, operates, you know, without being, you know, I guess, uh, a direct line of sight, really, for the investor. And so we, we were able to, I think, begin uh, with a very large space. So this, this building has 180,000 square feet. Um, currently, 450-plus startups sit here. Um, and we've, we've built many, many services on top of that. But initially, it was just an incubator program, um, very similar to YC, so early stage, idea stage like startups. Um, and then thereafter, uh, we, we kind of opted into the corporate innovation space because a number of these folks uh, became, you know, that we would get inquiries as it relates to how we might optimize their strategy or help with deal flow and so forth. And so since that started, roughly 2008, 2009, um, in 2013, after a number of relationships, uh, typically an exclusive partner, uh, exclusive corporate, and we had a, a conversation with a, a great guy named Michael Calvert from KKR. And after he had reviewed our, our portfolio, he said, you know, guys, you have a lot of activity in retail. Why aren't you um, trying to create not only a channel relationship across the most active and most kind of relevant infrastructure players, but how do we optimize startup success rate um, in bringing them to these folks and solving their problems? And so we launched our retail program under this consortium model uh, in fall of 2013. And since then, we're now up to roughly 12 verticals, each with the respective grouping of uh, you know, F100, F500 corporates around them. And uh, you know the unique value proposition that we offer, um, for the most part, is our, our accelerator program, which is one of many offerings to the startup, uh, doesn't necessarily require equity. So startups get the opportunity early through growth stage to sit in an office right next door, you know, to my friends at Deutsche Bank or Banco do Brazil or uh, you know any of the other folks that office with us here. We have about 40 different financial institutions that sit right here on site. Um, so it's a really interesting model in the sense that uh, we really try to you know. I guess, you know, empathize with the entrepreneur in understanding that, look, time is everything to them. And if we can, in one way or another, expedite a no or, uh, in some, you know, some cases, a yes, um, that's that's basically life or death for the startup. Um, so it's a very important element to us to make sure that uh, we are truly bringing results and, more importantly, opening doors and putting these startups in positions to be successful. And if you, you said you have 12 verticals to work with, do startups have an option to work in these or can they bring their own? I mean, what I'm asking is, are you saying, listen, uh, retail commerce or whatever, you know, this is an area, these are the, some of the people we have, Fortune 500 players in there, go talk to them, see if they have a problem we can solve. Or you say, listen, uh, you know, startup, the, the startup may already have a retail problem that it's trying to address and you sort of introduce them to the 500 uh, sort of uh, fortune 500 uh, retail companies that, that might be in your vertical sure so uh, it's actually a little bit of both um, I mean the general process for how how we select startups and so forth is is actually kind of bilateral so number one we'll we'll survey all of our corporate partners uh, effectively you know once a quarter or more um, they'll be here typically between four to six times a year or they'll be housed here on site or uh, you know, we have many locations throughout the world I think 23 at this point um, so they'll dictate not only a technology interest area, but as well as specific use cases. And um, you know, we found over the years that it's important to uh, understand that there's certain environments for which it's relevant to have kind of a line of sight for education, uh, versus say an off-the-shelf like in, uh, off- offering from a startup that's experienced, validated, and certainly the type uh, that could enter into in a relationship with a large F100 global um, entity. And so. Um, we do a little bit of both in the sense that we'll survey um, these interests and then proactively go source companies um, early through growth stage that are relevant for that, as well as uh, you know, basically take in and matriculate through all of our different locations um, startups that may have interest to begin with. So it's, it's both 
sourcing as well as inbound. Um, you know, to the startup, the value proposition is really, hey, here's free office space and a, you know, fully integrated pipeline uh, expediting process. Um, so we'll put you in a position where it's not the innovation, say, associate that's talking to you. It's the person that has already pre-selected a technology interest, a use case, and has seen your information. So there's an already existing interest of, of that relationship. Um, but again, I think you know when you look at how difficult it is for corporate innovation, there's very clear challenges. One is the, the, the pace, and secondly is just you know when you deal with a large organization, how do you optimize all the constituents and stakeholders required to push through a technology? And so yeah. that's one of the big lessons we've learned. The pace is, I think, you're, you're right on the money on that one because that is not easy to deal with, especially when you are... When startups are basically working in a field where they think they have, you know, X many months and they have to raise so much capital and then they'll, you know, have an exit or something like that, it uh, doesn't work with the F100 like this. Not That's at all. Right. <laughs> That's exactly Take, right. It takes a year just to sort of get their attention at times, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I, I remember this feeling exactly, uh, you know, you've got six months left in burn. You have a potential pilot. Uh, it may be paid, may not be. Um, if it's not paid, you make sure you're getting that as a referenceable pilot so I could say I'm working with XYZ entity. Um, but yeah, if I put all my development team onto this proof of concept or pilot and it does not convert, that could be the end of the company. And so we do our best to really, you know, if we if we know that there's perhaps not a great match or uh, for whatever reason it doesn't, we want to get a no immediately. Um, I don't want, you know, the, the entrepreneur and, and the entrepreneur's team uh, to, to really waste any of that time, but more importantly, um, you know, that's that we have to be family friendly if we're going to be successful in what we do here. So that's a very important element to this. How how unique is your setup vis-a-vis, let's say, the others, uh, the other incubators, accelerators, uh, nomenclature notwithstanding? But how different is it? Well, I think you know, number one, because we have a concentration of all these different verticals here on site at one location, that's a pretty unique offering, and so we see we see really a lot of interesting cross pollination between um, these varying verticals. So, for example. You know, there's a couple of use cases right now we're working on where we see crossover with blockchain and the autonomous vehicle, um, or on the other side, compliance and identity as it may relate to a health insurance offering, or um, KYC and compliance. You know, for for the consumer that's being onboarded at a, at a bank or financial service offering. Um, the 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 reality is is you know because we're stage agnostic, the the quick wins uh, are often perhaps not a monetary value to us, but to us it also means that this is a great kind of learning curve for the startups that perhaps are a little bit more immature or earlier than these startups. Um, so, you know, when, when you see the lay of the land out there, there's a lot of programs that are fantastic for those that are at idea stage, and it's kind of their first run of the mill, and, you know, things that you would focus on like you would in an incubator, uh, you know, your path to market, how you, your product market match looks, building out your actual prototype, building, you know, the pipeline for your, your enterprise, your consumer base. Um, but, you know, for us... Uh, I think we don't like to think as though we're competitive to folks. If, if there's any point of competitive uh, or competition, it would probably just be the first check into the company. Um, but yeah, the other offering is, again, we don't take equity. Um, so we'll opportunistically invest, and, and we kind of want it to be in a scenario where it's really a pull, uh, a pull kind of environment. So uh, if you want our money, that's great. Come to us. We're not going to force it on you. Um, and I think the other side of this is some of the challenges often for those that go through, say, a specific or exclusive program, um, you know, often that may mean that they've kind of been red flagged by any other entity that's competitive to that one uh, partner. So there are some, I think, nuances that you know, make that really, I think, difficult for a startup to scale globally for uh, you know, a relationship that um, may have started with, say, you know, one bank uh, many years ago with their, their one particular data set. 
Mm. What's the average age? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, it ranges. We, we've seen, I'd, I'd say, okay, well, I can make an easy answer. On the Bitcoin blockchain side, it's probably below 30. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, on the other side, imagine. so you can imagine then on the, to the same tune, anyone in compliance is typically an older group or... Um, you know, arguably 20 to, to 40 is really kind of the, the mainstay. But we, we have a lot of folks that are, you know, from any, any and many walks of life here. And uh, are your startups predominantly stateside or have they come from abroad, from Europe or Israel or South America or, or Middle well, East, etc.? So one of the big pushes in, in the past two years specifically has been scaling us globally. So, for example... Um, you know, of this last cohort, I'd like to say we received applications from over 20 different countries, um, and I think that's perhaps one of our strong suits uh, in kind of offering to the to the folks around the world um, is this kind of process of tech transfer. So we launched, um, for example, in Paris, a program with BNP Paribas, um, which launched earlier this year. Um, so we've gone through our first cohort with them, and we'll be stationed at actually Station F. Um, so that's a, a pretty exciting uh, facility there that'll be opening up um, in, in a short period of time. Um, but yeah, the, the reality is, is a lot of these folks that are building products are from all over the world. And so uh, with that, we have 23 locations, offices um, in varying kind of form and function. So for example, we work with Actual Springer in Berlin um, or Daimler in, in Stuttgart with the Startup Autobahn program. And so tech transfer, frankly, is one of the kind of the big value propositions for us and being able to create soft landings and, and bridges between these activities. So, so uh, these satellite offices... Are uh, what are they like? I mean, is it like a hub and spoke operation? Eventually, the spoke will connect to the hub. That's right. So, for example, in, in this first cohort um, that we had at, at Paris, uh, ten startups came through. I believe three were French. Uh, the rest were from varying different Europe and, and American uh, locations. So, I'd like to say two came from the U.S. to Paris. Um, so, so yeah, this is you know a very very interesting area for us because we feel um, there's a lot of opportunity particularly in like, the very kind of consistent, I'd say, uh, you know, products that will hit markets. So, for example, we invested in a company called N26 um, a number of years ago through the actual Springer relationship. And so, wow. uh, yeah, that was a good one. We, I believe we were the first yeah. check into them. Um, but the reality is, is we see a very similar process of a challenger bank making, you know, of course, nuance to the respective market, but very similar mm-hmm. feature sets, you know, the mobile banking offering and and so that's kind of the, the, the mindset is, well, you know, not only can we help the startup you know, match against that current respective market, but where else can we bring them? And I, I, I think you know, the best example that I can think of off the top of my head um, actually does not come from our fintech activity, but uh, from our relationship um, with a company called TruckPad. Um, so think of TruckPad as kind of like Uber for truck drivers. Um, we work with them down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, we were working there with, by way of some of our colleagues at Porto Seguro and elsewhere. And, and uh, you know, eventually they came to Silicon Valley through our mobility program, and then we brought them over to Stuttgart um, for Daimler. And so that was a great kind of, I think, process for the startup in the sense that, you know, they, they got to experience a lot of what the Silicon Valley best practices were here, and they brought it back to the Brazil market. And then eventually we transported the idea out to Stuttgart. Um, and at this point, you know, some pretty heavy hitters from the Daimler team sit on their board, and there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and so that's kind of the idea is, you know, not only can, how can we optimize and expedite the process for you going to market, but then after that, how do we scale you globally? Is there a floor price that you have in mind or some form of a pre-qualification criteria under which you will not take a company if you don't see them, for example, that the, I don't know, that the, that this is not scalable or the initial investment is too low or something like that. What's the criteria for selecting based on price and investment? 
So I think you know, for selecting within the program itself, and I, I should note, we invest both within, outside, um, or completely uh, you know, unrelated um, for, for our investments. So it's not a requirement to participate for that. But the, the general question that we have to ask ourselves is what happens if this group has a problem at a global basis? So for example, two people with an idea and a dog can't serve uh, out of the Silicon Valley garage they're working, the no, Singaporean financial institution, right? And so that's, that's the big question. And you know, along the spectrum of where it's, it's probably ideal for them to engage with a corporate or somebody if they are enterprising, I mean, certainly we want an MVP at the very least, um, or at least in the process of kind of building out your MVP, certainly some sort of traction relating to uh, maybe one or two paying clients or referenceable clients. Um, but yeah, the idea is, can you actually, if you were to do this successfully in rendering, say, an offering to this corporate, could you serve them in the next six months? And if not, what would it take for you to do that? And so generally the question is, do you have a live beta product or not? Um, uh, after that, and, and if, if not, we would probably push them into our, our incubator program um, called Startup Camp. And you know, often we see those folks go through that program, graduate, and then come into one of the vertically-based programs. Um, but yeah, that's generally the litmus test. Are you able to actually work with the group, um, and is there something that you have to show for? Uh, <laughs> we, we see too often an idea that's being pitched. That's you know, yeah, and we'll hire that CTO, and we'll we'll make sure that that you know first sweep and the that proof of concept comes out. Here's the mockups. So we we really want to make sure that there's something to show for, and there's something valuable that that corporate can see. But is it? Uh I hate to use the word, but do you discriminate, if you will, even in a mild sense? Strong word, though. I'll, I'll admit, I'll give you that much. But do you discriminate in any sense that this is a, a worldwide a fintech play that's maybe happening in Africa or, you know, Brazil versus, let's say, Main Street, USA? So I think we, we absolutely do not try to discriminate in any fashion. I think we have well over 7,000 fintech startups listed in our, our database that we monitor um, we have a full team on our venture side that is actively pursuing relationships with them and updates. And so the, the purpose there is while they may not, I mean, to be very frank, it's the best time to invest in the startup is prior to <laughs> to that beta. That's where we have the most leverage. Um, but, you know, we don't really think like that. We think more or less if we do uh, successfully convert this into a product that we can help sell to some of the friends that we work with, you know, what, what does it look like to be kind of a sexy cap table and, and where do we sit within that cap table so they're poised um, to do well in their A or their B round beyond that. Um, so I'd say, you know, we'll opportunistically invest. Uh, I've had many circumstances where, you know, I've, I think one of the most recent investments we did, I was the first phone call to this one gentleman that had just started this idea. And so, you know, he, I think, just left his company or just had incorporated and it was the day after and I, you know, I... I am the type that will hound you out and go on your website and get into your contact form and say, I'm, hey, give me a call, and then I'll call that number that's listed on the bottom, and then I'll find my LinkedIn contact. So if I'm interested, we'll find you. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, for us, you know, the investment is important um, so that we can you know, uh, not only uh, you know, create that opportunity during the program, but through our alumni network and our, and our program thereafter. That's a very interesting way for us to incentivize you know, the continued business development help that we offer to these startups. Um, and of course, as you know, uh, entrepreneurs are often cyclical, so things come back to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you go on road shows, by the way? We sure do. Um, so, in fact, we had a, an event in New York at 60 Wall Street, Deutsche Bank, um, just to, I think about a month ago, two months ago, right around the Consensus Conference, that blockchain conference. Um, and we do this showcase quite often. So uh, we did that again, um, actually, in October. Uh, of last year in Toronto at Mars, um, back back with Adam and Angie and some of our friends at TD, Deloitte, and elsewhere. 
Um, and of course, uh, you know, we've, we have a number of different relationships with these, these banking folks. So often that may mean we actually just set up an event or we'll co-organize events. So you'll, you'll see us at BAI's event in Atlanta in, in the first week of October. You'll see us at Money 2020 with Startup Alley. Um, and a few other events that are coming about. So absolutely, uh, we, we travel. We do whatever we can to help the startup be successful. Um, what about Europe and Asia? Do you go there? Do you go to Money 2020 Copenhagen or uh, uh, FinTech Paris or something like that? Or we, I think Money 2020 Hong Kong is, uh, Singapore or Hong Kong is now starting. Singapore, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in fact, my, my colleague, Omid Nernfar, from, uh, he's our director at, at Plug and Play Paris uh, with BNP Priba, he gave a nice talk um, you know, and, and basically poised the question. I'm sorry, I'll probably butcher the title of his talk, but Jason, basically, is your corporate innovation uh, you know, strategy worth it at this moment? Or are you, are you just looking at nice startups and giving numbers? And so mm-hmm. you know, we, we feel at Plug and Play we like to, to speak softly and carry a big stick, kind of like you know, the Churchillian perspective, but we don't like to... To say what we do, we'd rather just go and do it. So I think, yeah, one of the areas that we've been very successful is making sure that not only does Plug and Play have a presence at all these events, um, but more importantly, our startups. And so that means, yeah, as best as we can, I think we'll we'll put in contact our, our friends at you know these organizers. So for example, at Money Twenty Twenty, we've had uh, you know a lot of great success with that team there, Andrew Morris and, and the other folks um, behind that. So. Uh, it's a very important element just to socialize what these startups do and put them in front of the people that would be interested to hear about about where they're headed. It's a finger on the pulse, huh? That's the idea, but man, <laughs> sleeping on planes and in taxi cabs is not fun. It I'm tired. It's not fun. It's, and, let me, and, and anyone who's hearing this thing, you know, it may seem glamorous in movies, but it is anything but, you know? Uh, so, yes, as a fellow, fellow traveler, I, I, can, uh, I can relate. How competitive is the landscape for companies within the United States and, more importantly, companies outside the United States that would like to come on board? What is the process? How long is it usually and how many times a year do you do it? Sure. So uh, pretty much all of our verticals will run two cohorts per year, and each cohort will be roughly uh, anywhere between 10 and 30 companies, depending on, depending on the size of the, of the group of uh, the consortium as well as kind of the domain. And so in fintech, for example, um, we're now in uh, the process of our, our sixth batch. Um, and so that means... How many, how many applicants f- uh, did you take in this batch and how many applied? Sure. So it's, it's pretty much right around 1,000, um, pretty consistently wow. per, per cohort. And it, a lot of the reason why we have such a high number is not because we're perhaps the most exciting or the best at what we do. It's just we do a lot of activities and, and a lot of work that's sourcing all, all year round in virtually every single office that we have in, in the world. And so um, in addition to that, we're yeah, you know, by way of events like uh, Money 2020 or others, um, you know, we make sure that we're, we are there every single time that we can be. And so, yeah, um, through that grouping, it's typically uh, a process where you, know, you can apply on our website, um, plugandplaytechcenter.com slash fintech. There's a little application there. Um, these programs run for three months. Uh, we'll source actively through both of the program timings. We'll kind of shut down and be a little bit quieter for November and December, given that's a, you know, kind of a generally crazy time for this industry, as well as retail and a couple other highly relevant industries that would impact kind of whether or not we could actually make something happen during that month. But yeah, it's a it's very well uh, proportionately represented globally. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of folks that come from the States, but uh, you know, for us, it's not about the numbers, it's about the quality. And I'd have to say, um, you know, through the years, we've certainly seen an uptick. And, you know, I'm a startup myself, so I try to operate under the assumption that I need to get better every single day along with my team. And, hmm. you know, we've grown from two and three people to about 17, 18 globally. Just yeah, it's quite, a, 
quite a, a team you have at Plug and Play. I was going through the thing on your about section. Yeah, I, mean, I have to say, I'm you know a lot of the success here has has a lot to do with the folks on my team. So so folks like Omid and, and my other colleague R.J. Carver and um, my ventures guys George Demuni, Yvonne, and and uh, Evan and Sahil upstairs uh, where we work. So yeah, we have a fully you know venture facing team which is meant to um, stay in touch with the startup, um, understand the startup's needs, help the startup connect to the VCs, help syndicate rounds for them, and then on my side, yeah, go ahead. Do you see yourself expanding outside the U.S. as a as a as a base outside the U.S.? I do. Um, I think uh, as I've been watching some of the trends relating to Silicon Valley's position as the most dominant kind of I'd say market for which we've seen startup activity that's been diminished over the past couple of years, and I think growingly as we see more and more um, emphasis on decentralization, yes, I think it's very important to understand that the path is not necessarily going to be a channel straight through the valley anymore, and. Hmm. Um, you know the locations that we we are seeking and that we're excited about. Um, yeah, certainly are our hubs in each each of these markets. So, what would it be first, uh, East Coast presence or cross across the pond? So we're working at New York and London. Um, I can say that uh, we're, we're in earlier stages than those, but yeah, we are we are gung ho. Um, as you saw, we went to Paris. Um, we've been working both with Bank of the West and BNP Priba for a couple of years now. And we felt like it was a great time um, as we've been watching not only just the, the volume of startups tick up in France, but you know particularly some of the immigration, the, the French visa program, Viva Tech, and some of the other things that they offer um, are very attractive to startups. So um, between the Brexit and some of the other, I think, trends that we've watched in the European scene and, and the pending uh, you know, coming regulations with both PSD2 and some of the other stuff, um, yeah, we're, we're certainly out there. And frankly, the United States is behind in many different areas. Um, so number one, sandbox environments and regulation enabling, I'd say, permissionless innovation are close to that. We're way behind there. Uh, number two, our payment infrastructure is way behind. So there's a lot of things that are generations, if not many generations, beyond the United States. So there's a lot to learn. Um, and, you know, frankly, the place where we should be focusing is China. Uh, if you've seen the tea leaves and all the activities that relates to the mobile peer-to-peer offerings and how, how much engagement we've watched, there's a lot to learn, so we try to be humble and, and listen and, and watch and see how we can optimize what, what the best path might be for these startups. How does India play out in your uh, scheme of things? Because needless to say, in a couple of years, India's population will be bigger than China. That's right. Uh, so India is a very interesting market um, for a number of reasons. Number one, just relating to the identity um, push that they've been, been going forward. Um, so the, the national identity offering is very, very interesting to watch because that foundation enables a lot of different things from a financial services and kind of a greater perspective. So that plus what we've seen from the digital kind of uh, cash engagement and, and some of the changes that have occurred from the top-down government, um, very interesting. And meanwhile, we've seen um, you know pretty innovative solutions pop up from AML, KYC, from remote offerings. So not only is it one of the highest you know, dense populations in the area, but um, pretty significant engagement on the cell phone, pretty significant engagement as it may relate to comfortability. While there's still a significant you know, cash-based society, we, we see this as a huge market and obviously perhaps one of the best talent markets in the world um, between Bangalore and some of these technical universities. So a lot of our great stump, uh, you know, companies come through there. Um, there's a number of banks that are working on things like ICICI Bank um, and others that are building out some innovation strategies. So yeah, we're, we're paying close attention. We haven't done anything there yet, but uh, it's a fantastic market. And if I were to get your same pulse on Africa? So uh, this, I think, is perhaps one of the, you know, Africa and Southeast Asia to me represent perhaps the biggest area for which we can impact uh, financial inclusion and opportunity services. Um, so 
Uh, we've made a couple investments over the years. Uh, most recently, a company called Flutterwave. Um, so they just announced mm-hmm. the Series uh, A. I think. Oh, they just raised uh, ten million. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So, Is that one of your uh, incubies? Uh, so they participated in our prior batch, and you know, I mean, frankly, when it when it comes to the folks that participate in the cohort, because I, I think. The often, I think, misconstrued sentiment of an accelerator is, well, you go to accelerator to kind of build your company. Um, I think we're really, you know, if I had to have one specific term, we're really a business accelerator in that sense. Um, so, yeah, so Flutterwave uh, took an investment from us. Um, they've been participating with some of the folks that we work with here as well as obviously in Africa and elsewhere. They have relationships with some of our other portfolio companies. Um, but, yeah, we see general, and, and I hate to say Africa, because I think, you know, we should be specific. Um, the, the relationship uh, and the folks like uh, at Access Bank, for example, in Nigeria and some of the challenges that they're working on, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And, and frankly, you know, it's, it's a time where we have technology that can serve this, and it's already been proven. So if you watch what's happened with M-Pesa and some of the other offerings out there, um, while there is a delta as it may relate to infrastructure, there's a certain leapfrog opportunity. So from a, an investment perspective as well as, kind of a general, I'd say, projection of where financial services flows. I mean, that seems to be there in, in places like Indonesia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. They seem to be a very, you know, prime market um, for, for a, a, an entrepreneur to build something that could really shift how finance works. And it's, it's, it's heartening to hear that, you know, you are, you're based in the U.S., but your eyes and ears and hands are all over the globe which is great because you know there is the US just is one is one country no doubt but there are 219 other countries in the world you know and, and the rest of the population lives outside there um, and the opportunity is so huge that you know it's it, it's very nice you know kudos to you sir to see that you're at least looking in that direction because many of them don't well you know, I, I have to say that's why I got into this business. Um, I've been very lucky and had many opportunities to travel um, throughout the few years here. And you know, I think traveling number one it imposes empathy to understand you know, life is not the same everywhere, and more importantly, uh, it, it allows you to really, I think, bridge divides. And, and in this case, you know, it's it's really a, a sad situation to see that the the opportunity is there for us to serve this market. Um, but you know, the reason why some folks aren't there is because well, there's not enough money from it. It doesn't make sense to put a brick and mortar bank on every one of the eighteen thousand islands in Indonesia, or mm-hmm. you know, the infrastructure requirement to actually be able to swipe a card somewhere in in Nigeria versus say Kenya is a very difficult process. So, we see infrastructure plays there being very important. And at the end of the day. Um, you know, I think my goal has always been, and my vision has always been here at Plug and Play, is to change the way opportunity is brought. And and from my experience, uh, it starts with money. So if I can if I can start in the financial services industry and make an impact there, I feel like the, well, the rest will come thereafter. Hmm. Are you hiring by any chance? We sure are. Uh, we need a lot of help. Um, so we're hiring both for our activity in Paris. Um, we have a lot of stuff going on here in the valley. Uh, a couple couple events that will be coming up. So. Um, you know, we, we would really love anyone that's interested to shoot me an email, uh, and and I'd be happy to you know sit down or take a call. And you know, we've got a great team. Our team is very, I'd say, uh, very culturally um, diverse. And um, we have folks from the Middle East, Europe, South America, elsewhere. Um, I'm your typical 30s white guy, so sure, I fit that mold, but um, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that uh, that's so not how like we like the Emirates plane, right? The crew is multilingual. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. We have uh, French speakers. I mean, you name it. We can speak virtually every language. Very good, sir. Very Just good. Stop me. So, 
uh, uh, last question before I, you know, ask you for some closing remarks. When is the next uh, round that you'll be looking at? Uh, when does that take place? A month, maybe? Sure. Well, actually, um, today, um, August 3rd, is our orientation for the Batch 6. So, um, you know, folks can apply or reach out to us. Uh, we have rolling applications. Um, so anyone that has an interest can come to the website under the FinTech page and and, and ping me, or you know, I'm happy to, to share my email, Scott at pnptc.com. But um, we will be sourcing the next batch for this will be um, Q1 of 2018. So typically, that means applications will probably close somewhere between December and and January. I'll have to double check on that. But frankly, just get your information into the website, and we can go from there. Scott, in closing, anything you want to let us know, maybe of what can be expected, let's say, not far from now, 2018. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I am working on a number of areas uh, that are complementary to fintech. So, um, the you know the big big event that we'll have that's coming up next is on September 14th here in the Valley. So, we'll, this will be a cybersecurity event called Pure 150. Um, so, it'll be discussing some of the cybersecurity implications relating to financial services and a number of other industries. Obviously, there's a high correlation between the you know the banks and the banks um, retail folks and, and some of the challenges and breach vectors that they see. So. Um, if anyone's interested, we should have some pretty good speakers, including John McAfee and some folks from the FBI. So that there'll be some sparks flying there. So that should be kind of fun to watch. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I'd say that's the first next one. And then our demo day um, will come right at the end of uh, that Money 2020 week. So if, if anyone's going out to Vegas for Money 2020, they'll find us at the Startup Alley. I encourage them to come see some of the startups there. And the VCs uh, include Angela Strange from Andreessen and a few others that will be, be kind of voting on who will win that. And then... On the 26th, October 26th, in Silicon Valley, um, we invite anyone that would be interested to come out and watch our demo day. We'll have at least 20 to 25 fintech startups, and um, we'll be announcing a keynote, uh, a, a professor that's working on some pretty interesting stuff in financial services uh, out of Stanford. So, um, and, and in any event, we'd love to have you come here to the Valley, and of course, uh, if you're in Europe, we've got plenty of stuff going on there. So, uh, one way or another, get a hold of us through the, through the website. Very good. We'll make sure that all the dates and the events you've mentioned will be in the show notes. Scott Robinson, thank you very much for taking the time out. Good on you, sir. We'll hopefully our paths will cross again. Thank you, Faisal. And again, thank you for the opportunity to be on here. This is a this is a great podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun with over eighty casino style games to choose from. You too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 